The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Thank you, worship team. I also want to give a greeting this morning to um, Mr. and Mrs. Benjamin Smith. They're here with us this morning. Before we begin, I want to read a few words from Psalm 16. This is not where we're going to be this morning, but if nothing else, I could use this again. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Make known to me the path of life forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we have already sung about your magnificent work in our lives. I pray now that you would make that work even more clear to us. I pray that as you make it clear to us that you would give us hearts that respond as we should, as we ought, as we must. So I pray, would you please fill me with your spirit now and grant me clarity. Would you, even as I talk, would you Um, straighten up crooked lines and would you give me words to speak whenever necessary would you override even the words on this piece of paper and give us words that we need would you give us hearts as Frank just prayed to hear your word and to receive it to believe it and to respond with faith So would you grant us now faith? Would you grant us eyes to see you? Grant us to see you as this psalmist sees you. Would you do that now, please, by your mercy, because you are a generous, an extravagantly generous and merciful God for that reason. Would you do this to glorify your name? Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 33. Chapter 33. If you're using one of our Bibles from the hallway, it's our gift to you. And you can find this chapter beginning on page 385. Page 385. The events and the words recorded here took place around 600 B.C. 
around 600 years before Christ. The armies of Babylon, of King Nebuchadnezzar, they also go by the name of Chaldeans, they have Jerusalem surrounded. They are besieging Jerusalem, building up mounds of earth to reach the walls. Jerusalem sat up on a hill, and the, the Babylonians are creeping closer and closer with these, these siege mounds, and the soldiers are creeping closer and closer to finally break through the walls of Jerusalem. The rest of the book basically describes the fall of Jerusalem and the deportation of the people and the destruction of the nation. But here, with disaster at hand, God does something striking. He promises that He will restore His people. In chapter 31, God says that He will do this by establishing a new covenant with them, writing His law not on stone tablets but on our hearts. Then to make this promise vivid, he tells Jeremiah in chapter 32, go buy a field. Is anything too hard for me? With the Babylonians encroaching and about to breach the walls, go invest in real estate. Nothing's too hard for me. Then chapter 32, verse 41, we, we hear one of the most, I think one of the most emotional portrayals of God anywhere in Scripture. It says, I will rejoice in doing them good. I'm not going to do this hesitantly, begrudgingly. I will rejoice to do it. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. That's God speaking. Chapter 42 then says this, For thus says the Lord, Just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. God brings disaster, and He brings restoration, real restoration. So chapter 33, our, our chapter this morning, shows us how God will do this. So let me read the chapter. I'm going to read the entire chapter and make some observations. Chapter 33, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the guard. Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is His name. Call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah that were torn down to make a defense against the siege mounds and against the sword. They, that the houses, that is, they, the houses, are coming in to fight against the Chaldeans and to fill them with the dead bodies of men whom I shall strike down in my anger and my wrath. For I have hidden my face from this city because of all their evil. Behold, I will bring it to health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity that I provide for it. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man or beast. 
in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place that is a waste without man or beast, in all of its cities, there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks. In the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is Our Righteousness." For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David my servant may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying, the Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose? Thus they have despised my people, so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David my servant and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. The word of the Lord. There's a lot of details here. There's a lot. Many of the themes that run through the whole Bible, many of the great themes run through here. They are exposed here. But underneath all of these details and themes, the the most important word of this chapter is really quite simple. Faith. What does it mean exactly to walk by faith? It may seem strange that I'm preaching about faith to a room mostly of Christians. But how easy is it for us Christians, for me, to slide from actually walking by faith? Not, not losing our salvation, but, but living with the world on our shoulders. So it is good for us to ask ourselves again, just what exactly is faith? As someone in our church likes to say, that's a fat word that demands to be defined that demands to be unpacked. So 
pray that God will do that for us today. So God is gracious. When we take the world on our shoulders, he does not leave us there. He takes away the world that he may give us something infinitely more valuable and more precious. So the question is, will we respond to his work by faith? So from the text, I want us to see today three crucial features of this life of faith. They have to do with three words. Our suffering, a savior, and surprisingly, our siblings. Our suffering, our savior, and our siblings. The first point is this. Faith sees past God's blows to trust in his promises of restoration. Faith sees past God's blows to trust in his promises of restoration. This point comes from the first 13 verses. Verse 2, God is creator, and he created not for chaos, but to establish it, the Hebrew says. It, everything you see, everything that he created, this chaos and death that you see, this is not my end goal. This is what sin brings, your sin, and you've, you've desired it so badly, Israel, that I'm finally going to let you taste its fruit. I've, I've been merciful for so long. I have waited and I have waited and I have waited in mercy, but now I must, I must let you taste its fruit. But I'm also going to do something else at the same time, something that you can't see. I'm actually right now working to establish you, to establish everything that I've created and you in it. I'm tearing down everything that you can see to bring you to something so much better. Yes, something, though you can't even imagine this, something better than your country, something better than your very life. Verse 3, you want to know what it is, Jeremiah? Just ask me. I'll show you. Uh, You know what? I'm so eager to tell you, I won't even wait for you to ask. I'm just going to tell you. Then four times we hear the same structure. First, thus says the Lord. Then God points out what the people can see. The fall of the kingdom, a waste without man or beast. Then he promises restoration. Verse 4. You've got to picture this. Pieces, pieces, literal pieces of King David's Houses, the houses of the kings are being brought forward in desperation to fill holes in the walls that the Babylonian soldiers are creating. As the people see this, they they see not only concrete or not concrete stone, but they see the, the very crumbling of David's kingdom. They see the crumbling of the throne. They see the crumbling of their kingdom, of their country. Kind of like, you know, if, if the rest of our country had been taken over and invaded and then the last foothold was around Washington, D.C. and pieces of the Washington Monument and the head of Lincoln from the Lincoln Memorial being brought forward to, to keep the advance at bay. Terrible. So the, these houses are the they in verse 5. Not only are they being used to fill holes in the walls, they're being used to store dead, the dead. They're being defiled this way. The kingdom is being lost and defiled. 
So not only is the kingdom failing, but so is the priesthood too. God says that he is turning away his face in anger and wrath, and there is no priest to assuage it, no priest to give a sacrifice to stop it, no priest to heal the people. The kingdom and the priesthood are lost. But then there is this abrupt transition from verse 5 to verse 6. Did you notice it as I was reading? It's strange almost. Very abrupt. From anger and wrath to I will heal. I will bring prosperity and security. God turns on a dime. Why? Why? Because for this God, the, the, the point that we're meant to, meant to feel in this, in this abrupt transition is that for this God, anger and wrath and mercy and healing, they're all of a piece for his people. This God, he is a mighty lion. And when he wounds, as the psalmist says, he can take away all that we hold dear. But he is a lion who wounds in order to heal He wounds not to crush us, but to separate us from our sin, which will crush us. He takes away the world to give us the world. But His gift, it is only comprehended by faith. Therefore, verse 5, because of Israel's sin, God says, I am dismantling David's throne. I'm dismantling your world. But behold, look past what you can see with your eyes. And listen, I will restore the kingdom. Abundance of prosperity, security, the kingdom. And I'll restore the priesthood. I'll bring health and healing. I'll restore your fortunes just as they were at first. Just as they were at first, at the very first. Now, so that you may enter this righteous kingdom, I will cleanse you, verse 8. Look at, the, look at the completeness of verse 8. All the guilt of your sin and rebellion, I will cleanse and forgive all of it. I'll make you perfectly fit for this perfect kingdom by providing a perfectly priestly sacrifice. Though you can't see it right now, I will do it. And God says... For, I'll make this city Jerusalem new, verse 9. There will be such prosperity, such that the, the, the joy and the praise of this place will fill me, God, with joy. But the nations, all the nations of the earth will see this praise and joy and they will fear and tremble because they'll feel their exclusion from it. This people, verse 10, you, you, my beloved people, You and all of the land, all of my promised land will be filled with mirth. Verse 10. I love this word. I I thought of this the other night when at at the reception for for the Smiths. And you you have the lights overhead and the music playing and a beautiful evening and surrounded by all of your friends and family. And you see the bride and the groom dancing chatting and laughing to one another. It's free. It's pure. It's mirth. (laughs) That's mirth. This city will be filled with mirth forever. It won't be one evening. 
It'll be everything forever. Jerusalem, all the earth, a wedding feast, all the same thing, all images to describe where God is taking his people. Then in verses 11 through 13, God says, so that you will actually get there, so that you will actually arrive at your destination, I'll provide shepherds for you in every city, every city where my people exist. Not not like the pastors who led you into this mess, who said, peace, peace, where there was no peace. No, I'll provide shepherds. Another word is shepherd is pastor. Pastors who will speak the truth to you and thereby lead you to life, to the restoration of your fortunes. That's the promise. Again, I've skipped over a thousand things here. But that's the promise. A kingdom, healing, restoration as at first, as in the garden, as in Eden, as in the life you were designed to live, life in this prosperous kingdom, healed. But this kingdom, it is breaking in now, but so much of the time we cannot see it, right? It's breaking in, and when you hear me say, it's breaking in, I don't know about you, but my mind immediately starts to stack up all the ways that, no, it's not. Or, it is? Really? In fact, so often we see the opposite, which means we must live by faith. That's the thrust of this passage, to live by faith. Not to get lost in all the, all the details here, but, but to live by faith, which means to see past what can be seen with the eyes to the promises of God. To see past what can be seen with the eyes to the promises of God and then to believe those promises to bet your life that God will fulfill them. And then to demonstrate that betting by taking a step, a step that can only be explained by believing the promise. Faith walks on an unseen bed of promises from this holy, holy God. Authentic faith is not perfect faith. Authentic faith is simply believing the promise more than what the eye can see. Which, of course, requires that we actually put His promises before our eyes. If you are of this faith, remember that the time to meditate on God's promises is not only when the ambulance is on the way. And when the test results are coming, or when the nation is on the brink. The day to meditate on God's promises is today, so that when the ambulance leaves, slowly, when the test results are positive, when we lose the nation, we may still stand and walk, grieving, but walking, standing in hope. We also need His promises to keep our, our false American flourishing in, per, in perspective. The, the, the promises tell us that real flourishing is not found in what we can see and what we can touch at the pottery barn. 
though I love the pottery barn. Friends, real flourishing is not found there. Real flourishing is not found in the things that we can touch, but in what we can see beyond what we can see. In a kingdom that we can't yet see, but is breaking in and is coming soon. Are you walking this life of faith? Is this your life? Again, not perfect. Is this your life, or are you still working to restore your own fortune? Is is that life still on your shoulders? Faith sees that we can't make it back to Eden on our own. We need a restorer, a king for a kingdom, a priest for healing, and a leader who can take us there. We can't do it ourselves. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can see with our eyes that we do not deserve this restoration. We can't earn entrance into a kingdom like this. We deserve to be one of the nations who look from the outside and say, I wish that was me. But of course it's not. That's what we deserve. But faith faith sees past our undeservedness to to the mercy of this This lion of a God who wounds in order to mercifully heal. Faith sees that mercy. And believing that mercy, faith asks, I don't deserve it, but on your mercy, will you give me this king? Will you give me this this priest? Will you give me this leader? This leads us to the second point. Faith rests upon God's great king, for the promise's fulfillment. Faith rests upon God's great king for the promise's fulfillment. Faith rests upon God's great king for the promise's fulfillment. God says in verses 8, 14 through 18, yes, I will provide him. I will provide you with such a king such a priest and such a leader. But in order to find him, you'll need to look past what you can see. If the reign of the kings of David were a tree, it seems as if right now that tree is just a a stump. But, verse 15, I will cause a branch, a man, to spring up from that stump. This branch will be completely righteous himself. His kingdom will be perfectly righteous because he himself will execute perfect justice and perfect righteousness for everyone in his kingdom. He will do it. And all this flourishing, all this goodness that he has promised, the the seedbed of all of this goodness and flourishing is the righteousness of God. God's righteousness is the good life. And this one, he will provide it. Under this king's reign, you'll be saved, God says. From what? From the wrath and anger of God. Somehow, somehow this king will execute justice for all the sins of his subjects, but also at the same time make them all righteous so that they may all enter and enjoy the blessings of his kingdom. 
So then when his people come into the city and enjoy all of these blessings, they won't call the place Jerusalem. They'll come up with this different nickname for the place. The Lord is our righteousness. This place is all the result of the righteousness of the Lord, and he provided it. The Lord is our righteousness. Of course, as we keep reading our Bibles, we come to know that this king is Jesus Jesus, who descended from David, who was completely righteous, and yet who was crucified, as Pastor Steve said last week, the sign at the top of his cross said, King of the Jews, the King of Israel. Why? Why was he crucified? To execute justice. All of the anger and wrath of God that rightly falls on our sin and rebellion before God fell upon him, poured out upon him instead. And by his cross, he executed righteousness. For anyone who trusts in him, his righteousness is counted to us. This is the great exchange. All of our guilt placed on him, all of his righteousness counted to us, cleansed completely forgiven completely all of your sins all of your guilt all of it he is the perfect sacrifice and he was raised from the dead and he ascended into heaven which means every moment of every day this Jesus reigns over all sitting on the throne of David forever. He is the reason why God can say there will never lack a man to sit on David's throne forever. I keep my promise to David through him. And more than this, he serves as the great high priest of God's people. He is the reason the Levitical priests will never lack a man to sit or, or to, to stand in God's presence Again, the, the book of Hebrews says much about this, but, but because of his cross and resurrection, his indestructible life, and because of his ascension, his righteous wounds, Christian, are always before the Father. Always before the Father for you. There will never lack a moment for the rest of eternity when there is not this righteous sacrifice before the Father for you. Guilt gone forever. How sure is this? It is as sure as the fact that the sun came up this morning and that evening will come tonight. It will never end. You have this because of the indestructible life of Jesus. He is your great high priest and you have him. He is your treasure. He is your treasure and he is reigning over you, Christian. Reigning over you to take you to all that he has. All that have been united to him by faith come to possess all that he has. And he is reigning over every second, over every atom that interacts with your existence to bring you to this heavenly city. That's the question before all of us is, 
Who are you trusting for the recovery, for the restoration of your fortunes? Who are you trusting? No woman can save you. No matter how beautiful and pure and marvelous she is, no man can save you. No matter how strong and accomplished and powerful he is. And surely none of us can save ourselves. None of us can restore ourselves. The rubble of our lives proves it. As the rubble was being placed to plug the holes in Jerusalem, the people would see it and see, oh, I finally get it. I can't do this. I need a Savior. So the only way we come to experience recovery and restoration is by living with Jesus as our priest, our king, and our leader. Restoration is only found in Him, in Him alone. Now again, for many of us, this is old news. I trust it's good news, but it's old news. Yet it is always good to ask ourselves, just, just exactly where is my faith resting today? Where is it? Is it that I have the right theology? Is it that I've been free of that nasty sin for mm, six months now? Is it that I had really good morning devotions this morning? Is it that I, I once again had that, had that feeling within me that, that, that feels like God? Is that it? All, all of those are good things, but they're not faith. When we don't feel the presence of God, faith rests on Jesus to be in the presence of God for us. When we feel insecure, faith rests on Jesus becoming totally insecure, hanging naked on a cross for us. When we feel guilty, faith rests on the blood-stained ground of Calvary, sprinkled with His blood for us. When we feel no hope in the future, faith, faith reaches forward to rest on the still-to-be-fulfilled promises of God. When we doubt the promises of God, faith rests on His guarantee, the guarantee that we see at the cross. And when we simply doubt and we still don't know why, faith looks to the day and the night and remembers that their consistency is only a reflection of the power of God to keep His promises. Even when we doubt and we, uh, we become uncertain and insecure because of our own weakness, faith simply looks at the character and the strength of God and says, you are enough. You will be enough. When we still doubt, faith simply looks out to God and simply asks, I believe, help my unbelief. Faith rests on God even for faith, even for faith. Faith rests on God, on Christ alone. And yet, this, this faith of ours is never, never, ever alone. We need each other. We need each other for this life of faith. And this leads us to the third and perhaps surprising point about faith, and it is a crucial one. Third point is this. 
Faith sees the present work of God in His other people for our good. Faith sees the present work of God in His other people for our good. In verses 19 through 21, God says that He will be as sure to fulfill these promises in the future, as sure as the sun rises and sets. Then He says that this king, this priest, will not only be provided, but this king and this priest will have offspring. Verse 22. Isaiah 53 says that when the soul of Jesus made his offering for guilt, he saw his offspring and was satisfied. He saw us. We are the offspring. God says here that he will multiply the offspring of David the king and of the Levitical priests like the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. If it sounds to you a lot like the promise that God made to Abraham to multiply his offspring, the offspring of faith as the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky, that's, we should be hearing that here. They're the same offspring. The same offspring. It is no coincidence that in Revelation, the book there says that, that we will reign with Jesus on his throne We, church, are his royal offspring. We are his offspring, and God is using this life now to groom us, to prepare us, to reign with him as his vice kings over all of the restored creation. That's what he's doing right now. That's who you are. That's who the church is. Vice kings. And it's no coincidence that Peter, in his first letter, calls us a holy priesthood. And then Revelation, again, calls us priests to God. Again, church, we are this multitude of priests, this this offspring of the great high priest. When we are united to Jesus by faith, we become like him. We share in who he is, he who is king and priest. And leader, we become his offspring. We become a kingdom of priests. Kingdom of priests. That's us. I don't know about you, but again, my first thought is, and the big problem there is, I can't see that very often. At least not in myself. Most days I don't feel like a vice king. I don't feel like a a priest. Perhaps a moment ago you were thinking the same thing. You were thinking, really? This lot? This lot of people? Vice kings, priests to our God, really? It requires faith. Faith to look at the person sitting next to you who gossiped about you last week or who sinned against you and see vice king, priest to our God. It takes faith. This, I think, is one of the most difficult challenges in the life, the walk of faith, is to believe that the church is the church. It takes faith to see past all the shortcomings of the church and to see what's really there. 
It takes faith to look past this one who is so, so poor in spirit to see one who really does possess right now the kingdom of God. It takes faith to look past the the baby steps that one is taking in their faith and see that every step that they take is the fruit of the reign of this King Jesus over their life. It takes faith to see past that, that grievous sin that he or she did to you and to see a priest in heaven still with scars on his hands and feet, not guilty over that. It is so easy for us to to look only at each other's nature and not see what God is nurturing in each one of us. One of the greatest challenges in the life of faith is to look at the church and to see the church. It's a challenge, but it is vital, church. It is vitally necessary for all of our well-being. You see this in verses 23 and 24. The the, the people there are saying to each other, the Lord has rejected his people. you got to see the logic here. They're they're looking at what they can see with their eyes, and they're saying, ugh, this this ain't it. The Lord is rejecting his people. They doubt God is at work. Thus, God speaking now, it says, Thus they have despised my people. They, the people of God, are despising God's people. They basically said, God isn't working here, so chuck it. So instead of loving the others, I'll despise them. And as we we keep reading in Jeremiah, one of the reasons that God says this is that they they end up enslaving each other, mistreating each other. This is why people leave marriages and churches. This is why we leave marriages and churches when we shouldn't. There are good reasons to leave a marriage or a church. But plenty often it's because we do not have the faith to see beyond what we can see. We have a desire for good things, for the, for the marriage to be more a marriage, or for the church to be more what it should be. But then we conclude, for some reason, that we have to see it. I want it, and I have to see it. So we stop walking by faith and only by sight. And we keep on walking by sight right into a different marriage or a different church where we can see what we want. Rarely do we reflect on why we want that thing so much. But regardless, we end up despising the old spouse or the Christians we leave behind. Please understand, I I am not thinking here of anyone in particular. I'm just thinking about human nature. I'm thinking about me, thinking about us. But this is vital. This is vital because if, if we see God is rejecting His people that when God's people act the way that they act, we will reject them. We will reject each other. The healing that God promises us, the healing that God promises us, however, is meant to come by means of us. This healing that is promised God's people, God flows it from a priest in heaven through a priesthood. 
one priest to another. The law of God written on our hearts. The law of God written on our hearts and it flows out of us. And so the truth flows from one person to another and we each are healed one by the other. This is how we are healed until the day when we are healed by this priesthood. We now are part of this great high priest ministry of healing by the gospel. But it's really hard to be a healer of someone you despise. It's hard to heal someone you're rejecting. It's really hard to invest in someone when you can't see beyond them to see what God is nurturing in them. This vice king, this priest. C.S. Lewis, I I love this, C.S. Lewis said in his essay, The Weight of Glory, which you've never read, you must read. But he says there that if you could see right now the glory that the person sitting next to you will one day be vested with, he said right now you would be tempted to bow down and worship that person. (laughs) Don't. (laughs) But that's what we're heading for. That's who is sitting next to you. That's what God is doing in us through you. Through you. Can you see it? Our usefulness for each other's healing fundamentally depends upon faith. Faith that is, ironically, centered on the other person. Not really on the other person, but on Christ, on the Spirit of God in the other person. Our usefulness to each other depends on this faith, on seeing past we, what we can see to this king and priest and shepherd who is at work in all of us. Can you see it? Faith sees past our suffering and also sees past our siblings to a Savior who is right now restoring our fortunes and lavishing mercy upon us. May He fix our hope on Him in His work. May He fix our eyes on God and on the great promises of His gospel for our everlasting and our communal, our communal everlasting good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray, King Jesus, our great high priest, Jesus, would you give us faith? Would you give us faith to look past what we can see, to see you? Would you cause our faith to rest upon you? As it rests upon you, would you cause us to be useful healing ministers one to the other to cause us to be healed and to thrive we hope in your coming kingdom fill us with hope in that day fill us with faith we pray amen
Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.